that I teach is this story-based interviewing format where we're interviewing people about their past like lived experiences and we're using that to uncover needs and pain points. And that's because I've just learned both through experience and from diving into the research that we're not very good at articulating our own needs, but product teams really need to learn how to uncover them. I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. What does listening have to do with building great digital products? Everything. From listening to your customers, to collaboration in your team, to listening to your managers or helping them to listen to you. You might be surprised at how listening to reality versus listening to our ideal situation is key towards success. Author of Continuous Discovery Habits, Teresa Torres, is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and coach. She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. She's coached hundreds of teams at companies of all sizes, from early stage startups to global enterprises in a variety of industries. I loved her conversation, and it will open your eyes and ears to how listening can be a powerful tool in your day-to-day work. And it will take a mindset shift. Enjoy listening in. Can you remember a moment when you first uh, became aware of the power of listening, whether it worked or it didn't work? Yeah, I think professionally, I noticed from a really young age, like we've all been in meetings where people hear different things, right? But I think for me, even in my first week in my very first job, I was sort of blown away. It was a situation where we had a we had a client sort of telling us what they needed. And I was in the room with my boss and we were on a call with the client and we hung up and my boss heard something totally different from what I heard. And it was a really eye-opening experience of like, wow, we just had the same source inputs and yet we interpreted it really differently. And then I ended up staying at that company for about four years. And again, it was sort of this client relationship uh, sort of situation. And I saw this happen over and over and over again. And it was fascinating to see that, you know, we really just don't listen very well in a business context. We're all going a million miles an hour. And the amount of like just rework and confusion and miscommunication that occurs blew my mind. And it's something that I think I tuned into really early in my career and realized could be a superpower. And you thought it could be. And now what do you know? 
It's definitely a superpower. And I think it's, I actually noticed this, I think in all realms of life, not even just professionally, just little things like the server comes over to your table and tells you their name. And then you're trying to remember it later and everybody heard something slightly different. And then I love these moments because I'm always listening for like, okay, well, let's ask again because I'm really curious, like who actually heard it correctly. And then I'm also really curious about like, what happened that some of us misheard it or missed it altogether, right? Especially with names. Like we tend to introduce ourselves at the very beginning of a conversation where we're maybe not even listening yet. And then we have no idea what the person's name is. So it, this is something that has just kind of naturally um, been really interesting to me. And I think it's can be really helpful with just people. I think people that listen well are people you want to hang out with. Right. Like it happens so rarely that when you meet somebody who does it really well, you just really like that person. Yeah. Well, you know, there is research that shows that that people who listen are likable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. Right. Because the sad reality is how often do people really listen? That's right. Hey, just going back to that moment that you remembered, you were just at the beginning of your professional career. This is your first job. And it was right at the beginning. And you noticed that you listened to something different than your boss. At that particular time, were you, were you in a position where you felt comfortable sharing your different perspective? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I don't remember all the specifics because it was 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember feeling really uncomfortable. Like I remember the moment where we're like my boss was summarizing to the rest of us like our next steps. I was like, oh, wow, I heard something really different from that. And I do think I asked about it, but I don't remember like... Did we talk through it? Did it get resolved? I do remember several times at that company, clients really just pushing back of like, we did the wrong thing because we misheard what they needed. And that was a really formative part of my career. And it really helped me build a habit over my lifetime of just reiterating what I heard with people and making sure that we're aligned and on the same page before running off and doing some work. You know, I was really lucky in that I got exposed to human-centered design as a college student. A lot of the principles that we learned, I just sort of assumed were pervasive throughout business. I, even in that very first week, in that very first job, it was really eye-opening that like, oh, this is not really how business works. And I thought maybe it was just that place. And then I went to my next job and, and so on. And I was like, wow, we actually have a lot of room for improvement here, which, you know, is a blessing and a curse, right? The blessing is that it's a amazing opportunity and an easy way to get way better a little bit of a curse because it leads to a lot of wasted work. Well, I think I love the the fact that you have this this human focus, this human based focus. So that's really great. When you think about, so let's get, let's dive right into your book. Why not? <laughs> what was the spark towards writing this book? Your book is called Continuous Discovery Habits. So what was your spark of writing that? And then what do you mean by that? I work. I coach product teams and I teach them how to infuse as many of their daily decisions about what to build with good customer feedback loops. So how do we know we're building the right thing? Is it gonna work for our customers? Does it fit their mental model? Does it fit in their workflow? Everybody, probably everybody who has a cell phone has had the experience of a mobile app they were excited about and over time it stopped working for them. Or maybe it never worked for them. It was missing a key feature, it just didn't match their mental model, whatever, it just sort of degraded over time. We see this a lot in the product world, and I think it really comes down to 
it's easy on a product team to jump to fast solutions and to think it makes sense to our customers. Whereas really, if you're on a product team, you have so much more knowledge than your customer about how your product works that we start to suffer from this bias called the curse of knowledge. where We forget what it's like not to have all that expert knowledge. And then we make decisions that don't work for our customers. So for about the last 10 years, I've been working with product teams, helping them overcome this, um, really figuring out how to rapidly test their ideas, how to get feedback regularly. In 2016, I was working with a team who was really struggling with what to do when. So they gave me this feedback. They said, Teresa, you always give us really good tactics, but we're not sure we could do this on our own. And I really took that to heart because I... One of the reasons why I chose to coach instead of consult is I really didn't want to create a dependency on me. I wanted to help uh, develop people so they were left better off and not just kind of do project work for companies. That really led to me getting really clear on what was the mental model that I was using to make decisions about what to build and how I included the customer in the process. Um, and that led to sort of the core framework of the book, which is what I call an opportunity solution tree. And I started to see how it impacted teams and I knew that it could be, I knew it just needed to be out in the world. And so that was really the catalyst uh, for writing the book. I knew that it was helping teams and I wanted to help more. It's, it's interesting when you have something where you're just doing it without thinking about it. Maybe whether you called you know, that from your experience or, you know, as part of your strengths or how you, how you see the world. And then to have to put that into words so that others can also do the same thing without you. Yeah, it's really hard. It actually took many tries and many, many iterations. But what I love about it is that for me, it really helped me identify, like, what do I uniquely do and what can I bring to the space? So like one of the things that I've really learned helps me stand out is that I'm a really structured thinker. And I teach in a realm that's really unstructured and messy. Right. So when teams are trying to figure out what to build, they get a lot of inputs from customers that don't all align. The same customer could tell you one thing on one day and something completely different on a different day. And it can be really overwhelming. And a lot of that process helped me realize teams do need a structure to navigate this messy middle, this mess. And that's really what my goal with the book was. When you talk a lot about throughout your book about the discovery people, the discovery process, right? Discovery is messy. Right. Yeah. So, and it's in that it's all the time. There's this continuous, uh, I guess, loop. So it's interesting. How do you create the structure? What structure is needed in order to be able to work within that discovery and, and to make products that your customers really want? Yeah. So this is what I was seeing is that one of the things I encourage teams to do is to interview their customers regularly. There's this premise that, so first of all, a digital product is never done. So we can't like kick off a project with some initial research and then call it done. So we're doing our research continuously because we're continuously evolving our products. One of the things that I found really early on is that if you're interviewing continuously, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Every customer you talk to is unique. The tech industry started to develop, started to develop these research tactics that I thought were really problematic. Like we tend to rely on user personas, which are these stereotyped users. I find them really problematic because when we stereotype we run into all sorts of problems. Like we start to think all of our customers are the same. We start to design for majorities and leave out underrepresented minorities. So I realized that we're doing this because our brain is trying to categorize. We're trying to simplify. We're trying to structure this mess. And so I started to look for 
how do we create structure while still respecting the uniqueness of all the different humans that we're talking to? How do we do this in a way that's a little bit more reliable? And that was just a fun problem for me to solve. And I, I do think there's an inherent underlying structure to discovery, especially for product teams. Product teams are working in a business. We have to create value for our business. So that's like one piece of the structure. But if we're customer centric, we have to create value for our customer. So that's another piece of the structure. But the visual that I came up with helps teams align those things. How do we look at the customer value in the context of business value? And then how do we make sure that our solutions are really aligned with both customer value and business value? And then that just really simple structure allowed me to look at like what are the tactics that help us discover that customer value? What are the tactics that help us discover those solutions? And how do we make sure we stay aligned with driving that business value? Um, it's a little bit hard to explain just with words because um, it is a really visual method, but it was just enough to help teams start to look at, okay, given where we are and what we know, what's the next step? When I listen to you speak about all those different areas, I, you know, from, from my perspective, I hear listening weaved through almost every step of what you say. It's like uh, you've created a structure to be able to try to listen as much as possible in a more unbiased way or more open way to be able to, you know, whether it's, you know, how you are working with your team or how you're negotiating what you're supposed to do with your, with the, the, the product owner or listening to the customers and being able to take in input, maybe beyond even what they're saying to figure out what it is that they might need in the future. So there's a lot of, there's a, a lot of layers that I hear you talking about. Yeah, definitely. And I would actually say it starts internally in the business. So a product team is starting with an outcome that's supposed to represent business value. The reality is a lot of companies don't have well-defined strategic context. So a lot of teams struggle even with that, with what that outcome should be. It's on a lot of individual contributors to do the work of talking to their executives and understanding how can their team create value. That piece alone requires a lot of listening. And in my book, I even gave some tactics and questions to ask of your leaders, of your internal leaders, to help understand what's the best outcome to be focused on and then when discovering customer value, that definitely takes a lot of listening. We tend to think we can just take shortcuts and say, I, like I tend to think like my intuition is to be, is to be able to say, Raquel, what, what do you need, right? And that, that feels like a shortcut, but the reality is most of us don't know what we need. We don't know what pain points we have. They don't raise to the level of consciousness where we can talk about them and explain them to somebody else. So there's also this sort of interviewing technique that we have to learn to help surface that and here to help our user expose those needs without them even being aware of them. And so one of the things I teach is this story-based um, interviewing format where we're interviewing people about their past like lived experiences and we're using that to uncover needs and pain points. And that's because I've just learned both through experience and from diving into the research that we're not very good at articulating our own needs but product teams really need to learn how to uncover them. Well, what I loved in your book, you were talking about when you were talking about, you know, how if you ask direct questions that often you don't really get the reality of what's um, the answers are not usually the reality. The answers are normally from the customer, their ideal situation and not the reality of how they actually behave or the actions they take or what they really need through asking for stories. 
you know, one or two stories to be able to tap into the reality and what's really going on is really fascinating. Yeah. And this is really grounded in cognitive psychology. So our brains really want to simplify and to categorize. So if I ask you something like, how often do you run? And you're a runner and normally run five days a week. That's what you're going to tell me. But the problem is we rarely have a normal week, right? So you might aspire to run five days a week and maybe some weeks you do run five days a week. But when I ask you that question, your brain is wired to be a little bit lazy because our brain's job is to keep us alive, not to be mentally amazing. And so when we ask that question, your brain is going to generate a fast answer because that's biologically efficient, but it doesn't necessarily reflect reality because if I ask you to tell me about last week in particular, what I might hear about is maybe your kid got sick and you had to pick your kid up early at school and that interfered with your ability to go out on a run. And that feels like an exception, but if we go back and look at this last several weeks, exceptions happen far more often than we think. Um, and again, that's because our brain is taking these shortcuts when we're summarizing our behavior or when we're generalizing our behavior. And there's a wide variety of reasons for this. There's a number of cognitive biases that come into play, but we're just not very good at answering direct questions out of context as a result. And so to really understand behavior, we need to dive into specific instances. So tell me about yesterday. Tell me about the day before. Tell me about last week, rather than what do you generally do? So if I were to ask you then, tell me about the last time that you listened to customer feedback and it gave you an idea, I don't know, a new idea. <laughs> that would be different than, you know, tell me about the, um, the interviews that you do with your customers. You know, when I interview a customer, I'm always starting with a tell me about a time when type question. So, so I'll give an example, like I run a a community for product managers, designers, and software engineers. And when I interview them, I, that question I ask them is, tell me about the last time you engaged with the community. Now, when I teach this, what happens is if I, if I ask you, tell me about the last time you engaged with the community, you're going to give a really short answer. It's going to be something like, oh, well, I logged into Slack yesterday and I read through a few channels. Okay, well, that's not a very good story. It's not the interview participant's fault. It's because we have these conversational norms where the expectation is we split the, the conversation time evenly. So I asked you a question that takes about 10 seconds to ask. You're going to give me an answer that takes about 10 seconds. And so my job as the interviewer is to help ground you in that context and get you to tell me the whole story. So I'm going to start with, okay, so you logged into Slack yesterday. Set the scene for me. Where were you? Um, oh, you were on your phone. You were waiting in line at the grocery store. You had some time to kill. Great. So you open the Slack app. Do you remember what you did first? And I'm going to literally walk them through every detail. And this is actually, it takes a lot of listening because we want to skip over steps. And I'll tell you, there is a homework assignment from like middle school that I remember that I think is a really great way to learn how to do this well. So when I was like in, I think, seventh grade, we got this writing assignment where we were told to write about what it would take to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And some people wrote, I pulled out the bread, I put peanut butter on one side, I put jelly on the other side, and then I cut the sandwich in half. And some people wrote, I walked to the fridge, I found the, I op like I opened the door, I looked for the jelly, I picked it up, I walked it over to the counter, I then opened the pantry, I looked for the peanut butter, I found it, I walked it over to the counter, 
I walked to the silverware drawer, opened it, pulled out a knife. And like the level of detail between those two is amazing, right? In the first instance, we're glossing over all the steps. In the second instance, we can actually visualize what the person is doing. We're getting all of the detail. And this is actually, I think, a really great example of what it means to interview well. We really want all those little teeny tiny details because what comes out when we uncover all those little details is, oh, it sounds like they just went to Slack and read some messages and it was successful. But when we dive into the little details, we hear things like, wow, there's 12 channels that have unread messages and I'm not sure which one to read first. And then we hear about how they chose which one to read first. And then we hear about how they got a little bit lost because they dove into a thread and they didn't know how to back out to the main channel anymore. And it's that detail that uncovers needs and pain points. But it really requires this structured mindset to have that patience and to do that work to uncover the full story. So what I hear a lot in the, you know, the, when I do listening trainings and stuff or communication trainings, there's like is how, about how much energy it takes to listen in that way. It takes a lot of energy. They're like, oh my gosh, this is hard work. It takes a lot of focus because we're not so used to be focusing on one person in that way for such a long time. Even though I think over time, if you, that's a muscle that can be practiced, you know, that you can definitely develop it. But I was just curious from your experience of doing these interviews with your customers on a regular basis, um, is, do you have a sense of the amount of time that is a good amount of time that works well to get the amount of details you need? I recommend for most product teams that they're doing a 20 or 30 minute interview. The reason why I want them short is first of all, our product people are not expert interviewers, right? So to sustain that energy for more than 20 or 30 minutes is really hard. I actually think for a participant to tell their story in that detail is hard. So I think participant fatigue, interviewer fatigue are real things. I also think that when we go longer, I see product teams tend to make the mistake of collecting lots of stories at a really shallow level. And I would rather they collect one story with a lot of depth. And so I think kind of time boxing at 20 or 30 minutes and spending that entire time on one story is one of the most effective things to do. Yeah. So going deeper. Yeah. Like what you said. Right. And even within that one story, you can learn so much about that person, their behaviors, what they do, what's important to them. So much. In fact, a lot of teams are really overwhelmed. Like they leave a 20 minute conversation and they're like, everything about our product is broken. What do we do now? (laughs) So then that's the second part of like, how do we synthesize what we're hearing? How do we capture it all in a way that's not overwhelming? How do we look for patterns across our interviews? And that's also a listening piece. Like one of the things that I teach is synthesis. And that's a really hard skill to develop. It takes a lot of critical thinking, takes a lot of listening, takes a lot of reflection. What do we actually hear? And then product teams are doing it as teams. So it's it's one thing to do it individually, but it's a second thing to do it where you're aligning as a team on what you heard. And so I teach this visually. I think to do this as a team, you have to see your thinking on a piece of paper or on a digital whiteboard in front of you, you really can't do that alignment and synthesis work. Well, you know, just for our listeners, a lot of times, usually there's what you call a product trio, right? So you have the software engineer, the UX designer, and you have a product owner that are working together and they're doing the interviews together because- Yeah, because then everybody will hear different things like it like it was with your boss, the first, your first job. Yeah. Right? yeah, we all filter what we hear based on our past experience and knowledge, 
right? So an engineer is a very different experience than a product manager or a designer. So the three of them can listen to the exact same conversation and they're going to zero in on different needs and different pain points just because they have different perspectives. So when they interview together, they actually get way more value, way more insights out of each interview. And then the other reason why I want them interviewing together is they have to agree on a team as a team on how to act on that interview, right? So the work they're doing requires that they collaborate. And so in order to make that interview actionable, they need to learn how to surface what they each individually heard and then align as a team around what that means. And that's challenging. And business doesn't prepare us for us for this, right? Business tells us to work in our silos, to have our territories, to escalate when we can't agree. But we're learning in the product world that that's not how good products are made. Good products are made when we truly collaborate and learn how to really um, draw on each other's strengths. And I think that even comes to listening and what we're hearing in our interviews. So just to, so basically you have this trio, they're, they're, both interviewing. So you have these different perspectives and something else you mentioned, I think this is really interesting. Also, if you only have one person interviewing and the other ones are there, there's a certain power there. It's not equal, you know, between the two, between the three. So I think this is really important. It's not possible to, because only one person has heard and can then make the, um, can influence the decision from one side. So that's really important to take into consideration. But then you talk about how to synthesize what this team has pulled out of the interview into a visual, you, you have a visual structure. Are you, can you tell me more about why or what you do to make things more visible, why you do it, why that's important and how you do that? Yeah. So I have a visual, it's called an opportunity solution tree, and it just includes sort of the core components of what a product team is working with. So it's a decision tree at the root of the tree is their outcome that they're trying to drive. Below that, they're mapping out what I call the opportunity space. So opportunities are just unmet needs, pain points, or desires. That's what they're listening for in their interviews. And I use a tree structure because needs are hierarchical. You can break a big, hard, complex need into subcomponents. So an example that I give is, let's say that you're watching Netflix, and one of the needs that you have is, I can't find something to watch. That's a big, evergreen opportunity. As long as Netflix exists, they're going to be working on making it easier and easier for you to find something to watch. But we can break that need up down into subcomponents. As we learn about how people decide what to watch, we might hear things like, I need to evaluate this show. I'm a, I found a new show. I want to know if it's good. That's one need. Or they might say things like, I'm already watching a show and I can't remember what episode I left off, off on. That's another need that's related to I can't find something to watch. Or one that we hear a lot is, um, I have a specific movie in mind, but I don't know how to search for it. So these are all smaller needs that contribute to why I can't find something to watch. If we take something like, I want to evaluate, I, can't, I need to know if the show is good or not. I'm trying to evaluate this show. I can break that down even further. Some people evaluate shows based on the genre. Some people evaluate shows based on who's in it. Sometimes people evaluate shows based on whether their friends have watched it before. So these are all even, now we have three layers of opportunities. We have, I can't find something to watch. I want to evaluate this show. show. I want to know who's in this show. And as we're moving vertically down the tree, our opportunities are getting smaller and smaller. And this is really valuable for a product team because as they get smaller, it means we can fully solve something and ship value to our customers. And it contributes to the bigger, harder problem, 
even though it might take us years to solve that bigger, harder problem entirely. But to do this well, these teams, when they're interviewing, they have to suss out this structure. They have to listen for how are people evaluating shows, and they're going to hear different customers say the same thing in multiple ways, right? So you might say, I have a favorite actor, and because he's in this show, I want to watch this show. Somebody else might say, I really like actors who are chameleons, where it takes a little while for me to figure out, oh, that's Christian Bale. That's two different ways of really expressing the same need of, I want to pick a show based on who's in it. So then there's this listening and synthesis work that the team has to do, where they're, they're asking, are those really the same need, or are they meaningfully different? Are they sub-opportunities? Are they siblings? Right, And so there's sort of this relationship synthesis work that they're doing. And when multiple people are involved, they interpret things differently. They have to go back to the interview transcript and make sure that they're not projecting their own experience. That's really true to what they heard. And it's a lot of work. But the value of doing this work is we really uncover the core need, which means we build better solutions. And one of the things I noticed that you have, so you have the different team members, you know, map out visually in a, in a certain way, you have a structure in the book. People can look at that, how to visually map out or within the uh, the template, you know, how you pull out and synthesize or the information from the, you have the different interviews, right? And then you synthesize it. They map that out. But you have uh, the team do it separately first before they come together. And then they share what they've mapped out with each other and then start looking for what some commonalities. Is that where the synthesis happens? Yeah. So one of the patterns that I recommend with teamwork is that each individual on the team do the synthesis work first individually and then come together and try to align around a group version. And the reason why I recommend that is that we're trying to avoid sort of group think dynamics. If we first try to map something as a group, what tends to happen is whoever comes up with like the start of the work first tends to influence the direction the group goes. Or in company environments, the more senior person in the room tends to influence where the group goes. And then we see social loafing, where not everybody in the group puts in the equal effort, and then we don't leverage the different perspectives on the team. Whereas when you require everybody to do the work individually first, everybody has to think through it, everybody comes up with their own perspective, and then you can take the time to explore those unique perspectives, and you actually start to leverage all the expertise on the team and then we see with this type of problem solving, which is really unstructured, we want to explore different perspectives because that's what's going to lead to a better outcome. And so this pattern of doing the work individually first and then sharing your work with your team and then co-creating a new team version that takes advantage of all the strengths of the individual perspectives. There's a lot of research behind this really leads to just better work. But you talk a lot about shared understanding, shared understanding with your customers, shared understanding of the team. And, and this is part of coming to shared understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's three people is not a lot, but it's really hard to keep three people aligned, especially in a messy process. And then if you think about with customers, every customer is a little bit different. And we're trying to understand across our customer base what to build. So we can't just build for a single customer. I don't, I really think visuals are the best way to do this because again, we've all been in that meeting where we think we're aligned and then somebody goes and draws on the whiteboard and we realize we're not aligned. So I think that listening is a big part of this, but I think visualizing helps us verify that we heard the right thing. 
because of what you're talking about, this is a continuous process. You talk about how this process of interviewing customers and getting feedback over, it's over a period of time. There's not a start and stop of a project. This is something that you just put into this, you know, your, your system. This is, it's continuous. Someone was asking, but I think you talked about interviewing different customers, right? But there's also sometimes where you're interviewing the same customer over time. I had someone ask me, well, you know, how do you get someone to keep wanting to be interviewed? (laughs) You know, do they really give you that time? So I do want to see teams doing both. So when we're interviewing, With qualitative research, we're looking for variation in behavior. So the more diversity in the people that you're interviewing, the more variation in behavior you're going to uncover. So we do want to be interviewing lots of different customers in different regions, different usage behavior patterns, different demographics, different psychographics, just trying to uncover as much variation in behavior as we can. But there's also value in interviewing the same customer over and over again, because we start to get a depth of understanding of that customer that you can't get in a single interview. And we also see how their needs change over time. And one of the things that I hear from people who have not interviewed their customers or they're not interviewing well, is they feel like they're asking for a favor and they don't wanna ask a customer for that favor over and over again. But what I see in practice is if you actually focus on collecting a story and your interview is all about your customer and not about your product, not about how great your solution is, Most of the time, your customer will ask you at the end of that interview when they can do it again. And it's because we're so rarely listened to that if we interview well and we focus on collecting their story and we're letting the person just tell their story, it is rare that somebody listens to us that much. It's rare that we get to tell our story in that detail. And it turns out humans love talking about themselves, right? So it actually ends up being this really positive experience for the customer. Inevitably, they want to do it again. And I work with a lot of teams where like their sales teams don't want to grant access to their customers. And so I've been on a lot of sessions where we invite the salesperson to be part of the conversation and they're blown away by how much their customer loves it. And then they quickly start asking, talk to all, please talk to all my customers. So if you're, if you feel like you're asking a favor, uh, the way to get around that is to really get good at story-based interviewing because then it's not a favor. They actually feel like it's a treat. I can imagine the, also that this builds a long-term relationship with your customer. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. When I would just, we've, we've kind of covered different areas in terms of the customer interviews. We've covered some of the areas of collaboration. What are some, is there anything else that you can think of right offhand that would be really important for, for leaders and organizations to consider that they haven't maybe considered so far in terms of the work that you're doing and how to connect uh, this, this human side, this communication side? I think the core reason why we don't listen very well in business contexts is because we're doing too much, right? So we talked about listening takes a lot of energy. If you're in eight hours of meetings a day, you probably stopped listening about two hours into your day because nobody can sustain that level of energy. Even extroverts, like extroverts think, oh, I get energy from these meetings. You probably do get energy from these meetings, but it doesn't mean you can sustain that level of listening. You know, like when we, when we look at listening research, we often think like we know our significant other best, but we know from research that's not true. We're actually pretty bad at predicting what our um, significant other would want to do or what they think. And it's because we're so familiar with them, we think we know. But the thing is, we're around them all the time and it's not possible 
to listen at a sustained level all the time. And so what's happening is we're actually missing a lot of the details, but because they're familiar, it feels like we know them well. We see this in business. If you're in a meeting all with the same people over and over and over again, we start to project, we start to fill in our perspective as their perspective. And it's simply because we can't sustain this level of listening all the time. And so I see this, especially with teams that are collaborating um, at a really high level. It's We fall into this trap of projecting our own experience out of them because it's hard to maintain this energy. And so I think when you work with a trio and your level of collaboration goes way up, we actually have to be really mindful of the effort required and build in breaks and build in individual quiet time, even for our extroverts, and build in just ways of verifying did we get it right with each other. And this is why I rely on visuals so much. I think visuals are one of the best ways to verify with another person did we get it right. And one of the things I teach is for teams to even draw the stories that they're hearing from their customers. And you can verify that drawing with the customer. Was this Does this re- reflect your experience? Did we get it right? And so I think we underestimate the energy required and the effort required. And it, it leads to a lot of these little miscommunications. But when they happen all day, every day, it's why we fall back into these like business shortcuts of our, of our silos and escalating decisions instead of putting in the work to truly collaborate. And I can imagine, you know, also when you, you talk about, you know, doing these interviews or doing these things every, you know, every week on a very regular basis. I wonder from your experience, I, I would assume that that actually would help if it's regular because you kind of are in a rhythm, you're in a habit, you have, I mean, as long as you pay attention to the, you know, checking in, but you're, because it's, it is skill that needs to be developed over time and it takes practice. If you only do these things every so often, it's like you're starting new again. Actually, what teams typically do when they have a project mindset to discovery, not only do they only do interviews every once in a while, but they tend to book 12 in a week. I don't, I've been interviewing for a long time. I cannot conduct 12 good interviews in a week. Like I just cannot sustain that level of energy. And that usually means they're doing three or four a day. And I can't interview, I can't do three or four interviews a day. I'm not hearing, I'm not listening anymore in that last interview. And so one of the things I really like about a continuous cadence is we actually spread it out over time. And you're right. You're absolutely right. It helps build more continuous practice, which means we build more skill. And it's also just more sustainable because we're not depleting our energy by the end of the day. And then we're also getting way more value out of those interviews because we show up fresh. So if you if you look back at when you had your first job and, and where you're at now in terms of some of your skill developments, what are some of the skills that you've developed or capacities that you've developed that um, that maybe you didn't realize at the time, but now you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> never expected that to happen, but I'm glad it did. It was hard work, but I'm glad it happened. Yeah, I think part of the reason why I noticed that like in the first week of my first job is that I think... I'm pretty introverted. I'm very empathetic. And I think like listening was a very natural skill for me. As a really young child, I was very shy and just sort of observed everything around me. And I think that's probably where that came from. But I think what I have learned professionally in my career that I now teach is when you notice that you're hearing something different from somebody else, how to reconcile those differences, how to not think that what you heard is absolute truth really understanding that what we hear is so based on our previous knowledge and experience 
but there's not. I think in a, like in a customer interview, we want to get as close to what the customer intended. And I think I just have a whole new appreciation for how much we project our own experience onto other people and how we can how easy it is to mishear things, how important it is to take a group approach so that we and how important it is to do the work to really align around what we heard and to work through those differences because we will all hear different things. So I think there really is this skill in synthesizing and aligning um, that's really underdeveloped in the business world, just appreciating that we need to make the time and space for that. What you're saying, I love what you're saying. And you think about all those those meetings and discussions about who's right and who's wrong and... <laughs> You know, and how much energy and misunderstandings and, and not thinking about the long-term relationships of the people you're working with, you know, really gets in the way. And so what you're talking about is, you know, to, if you approach it from that perspective, it's it, it not only does it, it may be intense, but you have, you can build better work relationships as well as better, better products in the end. I also like, it's so easy to frame it as like, I heard this, you heard that I'm right, you're wrong. But one of the things I teach teams is it's not possible to fully know another human. Like it's just not possible, right? So it's not about I heard something right and you heard something wrong. It's about we heard two different things. How do we get as close as possible to what the other person intended? And recognizing we may not ever get 100% there. So that turns it in from this like absolute binary thing to this relative thing. And I think that's a really important mindset shift of looking at it as a relative ranking. Like if I look at what I heard and I look at what you heard and I go back to the transcript and maybe I even have an opportunity to follow up with that interview participant, how do we get as close to what they intended as possible um, knowing that we may never get 100% of the way there? And I think that takes some of the heat out of those conversations. That's great. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? I guess I'll just say this stuff is way harder than it sounds. Like like when I teach these activities, these like sort of synthesis activities, I always warn people, we rarely think this hard in a business context. We rarely take the time to do true critical thinking. And I think that's absolutely required to really understand what we heard. And it will hurt your brain. And a lot of us haven't really pushed our brain, our thinking, like probably since college. It sounds a little bit depressing, but it's sort of the reality of the fast-paced business world. And so if it feels really hard, that's normal, but it's worth it because the insights that we get are exponentially more valuable than the surface level insights we get when we don't do the work. While it takes time and it's really hard and it takes effort, you'll see the payback downstream, right? What's gonna happen is you're going to build smaller solutions that are better matched to the needs, right? When we have a surface level need, we tend to build the big solution that doesn't really match closely with the very specific need because we haven't done the work to uncover that specific need. But when we get really specific and we do that work, we usually can build a much smaller solution that very closely matches that need. And that's the downstream benefit is we end up building less, but better. And it's hard to see that benefit until you experience it. I would warn people, this will be really hard, but it will pay off. Do you remember the first moment that you experienced that? Ooh, that's a good I, question. 
I'm thinking about that little, you know, from the big to the little and like. <laughs> I can think of lots of examples. I don't know that I can think of the first, but I, th I think every product person probably has had this experience where you're talking to a customer, every, maybe there's a diversity of roles in the room. Everybody's jumping to a fast solution. And honestly, there's, if there's six people listening, there's six different solution ideas. You get in these awful opinion wars and then you take the time to really dig in and start to understand what did that customer really mean. And inevitably, you realize you shouldn't build any of those six solutions because there's a seventh solution that's teeny tiny that you could build in a day that better satisfies that need. I know lots of product people that have actually never experienced this because they haven't put in that work. But when it happens, it really is magical. Beautiful. Teresa, if our listeners want to get in contact with you, where do they find you? Yeah. So I blog at producttalk.org. Uh, we, we publish two long form articles a month, and then we have a monthly newsletter that goes out just trying to share articles related to product discovery. I'm also on Twitter at T Taurus. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty visible. Honestly, if you Google Teresa Taurus, I think I'm like every result on the first page. <laughs> so lots of ways to reach out and to connect. Well, we'll add some, we'll add those to the note in the podcast. And it's been such pleasure to have you on this podcast and to dive a little bit more into your work and also connecting it to, to listening, which is so, so important and how to do more of that. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun conversation. I'm your host, Raquel Arp from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with others for more practical and inspiring stories and examples so that we can catalyze a listening movement together. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy Listening In.